This is a Radio 1 91FM one podcast. You're tuned in to the R1 News, your stop for news and current affairs on the airwaves, 11 to 12 weekdays here on Radio 1 91FM, Te Reo Irirangi Kotahi. Tēnā koutou, tēnā ata. this is R1 News here on Radio 1, Te Reo Irirangi Kotahi 91FM. Ko kaya tēnē. Ko Scott, aho. Coming up on the show today, we have the Bulletin and Weather with Eileen. I spoke to Dr Maria Teflaga of the Australian National University about the Australian federal election results. We speak to Doug Hart, President of the Otago Art Society, about how COVID-19 has impacted global and local art markets. First up though, here is Eileen with the Bulletin and Weather. The R1 News Headlines. Tēnā koutou, ko Eileen tēnē. The man who attacked a Texas primary school yesterday posted his intentions on Facebook, State Governor Greg Abbott says. On Wednesday morning New Zealand time, an 18-year-old male entered Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, shooting and killing 19 children and two teachers before being fatally shot by police. It has since been revealed that he posted his intentions on Facebook approximately 30 minutes before the attack. The attacker shot his grandmother, whom he lived with, before driving to the school. She is in hospital in a critical condition. The massacre marks the deadliest school shooting in America since a gunman killed 26 people at Sandy Hook Elementary School, Connecticut, in 2012, and comes less than two weeks after a racist shooting at a supermarket in Buffalo, New York, in which 10 people were shot and killed by a white supremacist. The Human Rights Commission has unveiled a new school uniform policy that seeks to ensure the identities of students in Aotearoa are respected. The new guidelines bring school uniform regulations in line with the 1993 Human Rights Act, which bars discrimination based on gender, religion and race, amongst other factors. Key suggestions are around ensuring students can display their culture, such as allowing tāmoko and other culturally significant tattoos to be on display, and offering non-gendered uniform options to all students. The announcement was made at Bayfield High School in Ōtipoti and was attended by Race Relations Commissioner Meng Foon as well as Taiyari MP Ingrid Leary. Ōtipoti's tertiary precinct will see new cycleways soon. Announced today, the new cycleways will give the student area of the city improved cycling paths in the central, into the central city and harbour path and will include a separated cycleway on Albany Street. Construction is set to start in November and costs are estimated at $2 million. And those were the headlines on the R1 News. Now, Ketepehe te Ahua o te Rangi. How's the weather today? The R1 News Weather. Kete makariri i tēnei rā. It's cold today. Otipoti can expect a high of te kou, 10, and a low of fa, 4. And morning cloud clearing, southwesterly is dying out this afternoon. Apopo expect a high of te kou marua, 12, and a low of rima, 5 with morning frost inland and light breezes. That was the R1 News Headlines. Catch up at r1.co.nz forward slash news or find us at Radio 191 FM on Twitter or R1 News NZ on Instagram and tune in to R1 News at 11am on weekdays. That was the Bulletin and Weather with Eileen. Coming up, Scott spoke to Dr Maria Taflaga of the Australian National University about the Australian federal election results. But first, here is Broods with Like a Woman.
You're listening to R1 News. That was Broods with Like a Woman. On the 21st of May, Australians took to the polls to decide who would control the federal government for the next four years. The election saw a landslide collapse from the Liberal National Coalition, and Australian Labour Party leader Anthony Albanese was sworn in as Prime Minister on Monday. Yesterday, I spoke with Dr Maria Toflaga, Director of the Australian Politics Centre Study Centre at the Australian National University, about some key insights into, explanations and early analysis of the election results in both the Senate and House of Representatives. While a few electorates are yet to report the final tallies, incumbent Prime Minister Scott Morrison conceded to the Australian Labour Party uh, leader Anthony Albanese. What does this big swing against the Liberals represent and why have we seen it? Um, so, so this is actually um, a very significant election result um, in Australia. This, uh, according to the latest analysis, represents the lowest uh, seat share that the Liberal Party has held in the federal parliament since the party was formed in the mid-1940s. So I guess this is another way of saying um, that it is a real disaster uh, for the Liberal Party. They have lost... Uh, the seats that really make the Liberal Party the Liberal Party, if we, if we put it like that, um, the sort of traditional voting base 
uh, and, and more importantly, the fundraising base of this party, the, the places or parts of the country um, in which, uh, until very recently, all of its prime ministers uh, and senior ministers were um, drawn from. Uh, so, yeah, it, it represents a very significant uh, shift in Australian politics. So it'd be really interesting to see what the uh, sort of more in-depth analysis from, for example, the Australian Electoral Study uh, kind of uh, reveals uh, later on uh, as to why it is the case that we have seen this outcome. But looking at, I guess, the sort of earlier results, um, we can point to a couple of factors. The first being that... uh, we seem to have kind of come to a, a major sort of shift in the attitudes of certain cohorts of uh, voters, particularly uh, female um, voters who have uh, over time slowly been more likely to kind of uh, vote for left-wing parties in Australia. But uh, very recently, um, with the rise of these uh what we kind of call teal independence uh, in Australia, uh, the, the ability for, I guess, uh, long-term Liberal Party voters in uh, traditional safe Liberal seats have had an alternative to Labor to vote for, right? So um, these are voters that are very unlikely to vote for Labor or want to vote for Labor, but given the alternative of an independent, um, uh, you know, were were able to sort of switch um, their vote. And this was driven by several kind of uh, policy issues which the last government really struggled to Um, address in a way that was satisfactory to this kind of cohort of voters Uh, and they were uh, action on climate change which the coalition has um, really politicized uh, for a decade now the second being uh, how uh, women's uh, sort of safety and treatment in society is uh, was was treated. The, the government uh, faced several scandals last year related to the behaviour of uh, people within parliament, whether it be MPs or uh, staff, um, uh, which all kind of centred around uh, alleged rape allegations by a former staffer, Brittany Higgins, uh, in in the first week of her working in Parliament House, uh, and the government really struggled to respond to, I guess, the sort of the specific allegation raised by Ms Higgins and previous allegations raised by other staff. Uh, and then I guess the sort of broader issue around women's place in, in society, uh, you know, Morrison famously said that, you know, it was only after talking to his wife um, that he realised that he needed to treat this issue uh, you know, in a more sort of serious way and not as a sort of, I guess, just, you know, politi- politically, you know, as, as a sort of political problem to go away. And the third is an integrity commission. Um, there is a growing uh, perception amongst voters that the way public monies were spent by the former government uh, were either wasteful or uh, just corrupt uh, in terms of the uh, allocation of public monies and the processes on which underpin those. So we had several scandals um, relating to the allocation of funds for community projects like uh, pools and uh, car parks and the like, uh, or also the purchase of land for 
the international airport that we built in Western Sydney. And total together, these funds amounted to billions of um, dollars of uh, funding, uh, which in which order to general reports increasingly uh, found were allocated on the basis of the government's uh, perceptions of its political uh, fragility in certain seats, uh, often overturning decisions on merit made by the sort of um, statutory authorities or, uh, you know, government bodies that had assessed uh, these payments. So these these three issues were highly salient and relevant in these, um, I guess, teal seats where the Liberals have kind of lost their, their heartland. Uh, but we also saw shifts by younger voters in other Liberal-held seats in places like Brisbane um, to move to the Greens. Uh, here we think some of these issues relate, again, to climate change, but also things like home ownership, which is becoming increasingly difficult for younger Australians. So there was a whole host of issues, some of which related to the length and age of the government, the inability of the government to respond to key policy uh, issues, and uh, in some cases, um, just uh, arrogance and, uh, uh, of the government and dislike of the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. So as you said, um, the Greens made some key gains uh, in, in a number of Queensland seats, um, and they, but they also took a, a risk in directly challenging the ALP in, in some of these key electorates like McMahon and Brisbane. Uh, why did this pay off? Uh, that's a really good question. I mean, the, the Greens have actually been challenging Labor um, for a long time now, you know. Uh, I guess the sort of reckoning that the Liberal Party is facing right now is actually um, something that the Labor Party had to grapple with 10 or 15 um, years ago. As to why it has paid off, uh, the honest answer is uh, we don't know as yet. Uh, but I suspect um, once we we get this kind of um, the better data um, and we can kind of actually look into, you know, correlates that we think might be driving this result, um, it, it may be a combination of uh, climate change and, and housing affordability. Those seats in Brisbane, uh, there are a lot of um, renting uh, there are a lot of people who rent in those uh, seats, and so the average age uh, might be a lot younger there, uh, and these are people who are unlikely to feel that they can own a home, um, and, you know, and that's a, a kind of key factor that flips uh, young voters from being Labor or Greens voters to being coalition voters. So without access to that kind of... Um, life transforming asset acquisition um that that might be a, a key key reason so um talking about kind of the youth there for a second because obviously social media is uh seen as as kind of a platform of the youth and social media commentator and comedian friendly geordies has been a significant thorn in the side of the liberal campaign for some months now and he has international reach. How has social media really played a role in determining this election? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, look, I think social media is a has become like a, a an important channel for um, the way people gain uh, news. Um, I don't think this is just for young people now. I think this is across the board. Uh, you know, the, the Liberal Party congratulated 
um, itself on uh, winning the last election uh, by, you know, through the use of uh, boomer memes on on Facebook, um, for example. Um, look, I imagine Friendly Geordie, Geordie's has a particular appeal amongst uh, certain media, uh, social media users, like on Reddit, for example, or YouTube. Um, but I, I, I can't say he would have a big influence for for the Instagram crowd, for example. Um, but yes, uh, he he has uh, he has certainly courted controversy, um, not just at the federal level, but he's also you know had quite a few dust ups with the New South Wales um, coalition government. And uh, parties know this about social media. And so they do uh, increasingly direct uh, more of their uh, advertising budgets uh, to social media uh, and do engage in uh, micro-targeting. So, for example, Labor uh, apparently put a lot of effort into micro-targeting around waiting times for for GPs um, uh, in specific uh, electorates in Australia, which was not part of its sort of national headline campaign or its TV ads. Unlike New Zealand, which got rid of its upper house in 1950, uh, Australia is a bicameral system and the Senate has seen no clear majority uh, in the results that have come through. What will this mean for Australia and what likely outcomes are there? Oh, well, that's a great question. I mean, I think what's kind of important for um, New Zealanders to understand, I suppose, is that Australia hasn't really had a majority in its Senate, with the exception of the last Howard term between 2004 and 2007, since 1980. So Australians are used to governments uh, not having a majority uh, in the Senate or, frankly, anyone having a majority in the Senate, and Australians like it that way. So, uh, you know, this is one of the ways in which they feel that they, that, that they can add extra accountability um, into the system, particularly because we don't have your MMP system. Uh, so coalition governments are, you know, even though ironically the Liberal National Party is called a coalition, are um, comparatively uh, rare and uh, are really slowly coming to be seen as a legitimate way to actually form a government uh, in this country. What is interesting about the Senate results this time around is that the Liberal Party seems to have suffered quite a few um, losses, uh, potentially up to five Senate spots, which is a lot uh, in our system. Uh, and it looks like the Greens may hold the balance of power or they may hold it with um, a, a wider crossbench that are sort of more progressive-leaning rather than um, right-leaning, which is the sort of configuration of the Senate at the last in the last uh, parliament. So uh, this basically gives the Albanese government, which may be in minority or more likely in majority, a range of potential minimum winning coalition partners uh, in which to push um, legislation through the House uh, and, and, uh, and the Senate as well. So uh, it should be a fairly productive um, Senate uh, giving giving the government uh, more scope to make um, deals that it's probably more comfortable with. This election comes at a really interesting time for Pacific relations. It was only a few months ago that uh, AUKUS was signed and uh, the United States became the key partner in Australian nuclear submarines. And, of course, China recently signed a defence pact with the Solomon Islands. 
What will the introduction of the Albanese government mean for the security arrangement in the Pacific? So I would I would say that broadly speaking, the position between the Labor Party and the coalition in substance rather than rhetoric is is very similar. There's there's really not that much difference between the two major parties. Had the uh, had the Labor been in office last term, perhaps AUKUS might not have eventuated. Um, that but you know, but I guess what I would sort of say is that uh, Labor rhetorically is uh, not so keen to, I guess, be as bellicose as the coalition uh, has been to date. And we've already seen some movement to sort of effectively try to normalise relations between Australia and um, China. There was a a sort of press release from the sort of Chinese government congratulating Albanese on his when, um, which was responded to from from the Albanese government, kind of with an openness to, uh, I guess, normalising relations, but, uh, you know, he did call on the Chinese government to rescind the sort of trade bans that are across a bunch of sectors currently, uh, which are specifically targeting um, Australian uh, goods, uh, wine, for example, coal imports, things like that. Um, and so I guess we should expect that that um, Labor can probably make some progress to uh, improving the relationship with China, but it's unlikely to see a major pivot in the direction of the overall uh, relationship or management in the Pacific beyond the fact that this government is far more committed to doing something about climate change, which will notionally improve its position in the the Pacific. But it's actually not clear that Australia intends to do anything or to to really improve its um, standing in the Pacific. That kind of remains to be seen. So we can only hope that the Australian government will will take these relationships um, far more seriously and less for granted. So one final question, and we're kind of pivoting now to a more microcosmic view. Um, the curious case of Christina Keenley, obviously, who um, made the tra- or attempted to make the transition from the Senate to the House of Representatives um, and failed to uh, keep the a, a relatively safe Labour seat of Fowler, um, losing to the independent candidate. Um, what's that all about? Is, is, this, is this quite scandalous in Australian politics? Uh, so that so that, there's actually quite a lot of a backstory there, um, and in some ways, um, Christina well actually not in some ways Christina Keneally is the victim of factional politics within the Labor Party. So the reason why she transitioned from the Senate to the House was was simply because she couldn't secure a winnable spot on the New South Wales Senate. Um, party list system uh that that spot was held by the the shoppies union uh, which is a sort of socially catholic conservative uh right right wing part of the labor party and the person occupying that spot deb o'neill um uh, became a senator because she lost the seat of deb bell um i can't remember in which election uh and there was some talk about her uh, attempting to recontest a seat uh, in on the central New South Wales coast. Anyway, she didn't do that, and so that left Christina Keneally in, in an unwinnable position, and so the right faction of the New South Wales Labor Party essentially found her the seat of Fowler, 
which was being vacated by the retiring member Chris Hayes, and this upset uh, the, the, what the local branches had wanted, which was to pre-select a Vietnamese Australian called Tu Lee, uh, who was a, a local kind of worthy and a, a lawyer, um, you know, and a bright, uh, up-and-coming uh, new new thing. And so Christina Keneally was essentially kind of uh, parachuted, I guess, into a storm. Labor, uh, especially New South Wales Labor, re- really has form on overriding local branches and their desires and parachuting in and imposing candidates on um, local branches. And in this case, they were unlucky enough that a independent candidate, Dai Lee, um, was sufficiently uh, well-known and well-regarded in the community uh, that effectively Christina Keneally was unable to hold the seat because in a, in, a, in, a, in a seat very close by in Parramatta, a similar thing happened with uh, a guy called Andrew Charlton uh, who was imposed upon that seat, but he uh, was elected. Cool. Uh, thanks for your time. You're welcome, Scott. That was Dr Maria Taflaga on the Australian federal election. The time is half past 11. You're listening to R1 News with Scott and Kaya here on Radio 1, Tereo Irirangi Kotahi 91 FM. COVID-19 has impacted almost every sector of society, especially global art markets and sales. One industry which has adapted significantly through the pandemic is the art market. Recently, a collection of eminent works of art were auctioned for record prices at Sotheby's, the world's largest art marketplace. Notable sales include a Mark Rothko painting which sold for $48 million, a self-portrait by Andy Warhol which sold for $18 million, a William de Kooning that sold for $17.8 billion over a high estimate of $10 million, and a Sig- Sigma Pokes the Copyist which sold for $6 million over a high estimate of $4 million. We now have Doug Hart, President of the Otago Art Society, to talk to us about the global and local art markets and how these have adapted to COVID-19. Kia ora, Doug. Oh, kia ora. 2020 saw global art sales reach an estimated US $65.1 billion, up 29% from 2020, and exceeding the pre-pandemic numbers of 2019. An argument could be made that this means the art market has been positively affected by COVID-19. Do you think the art market has ultimately been beneficial? Do you think the pandemic has ultimately been beneficial or detrimental for the art market? Well, I think there's a couple of answers to that. Um, one is the um, access to galleries has been impacted and also for actual people um, attending uh, art uh, exhibitions has been severely curtailed. However, on the other hand, the uh, digital art market, the new uh, platforms of, uh, of Instagram and uh, various other platforms have uh, expanded, exploded, in fact, throughout the art market. So I think if you look at it as a, a whole, the art market has been incredibly privileged and beneficial ways for the art market. In their online art trade report for 2021, insurance company Hiscock described that the art market has historically held a stubborn reluctance about moving into a more digitised online sphere. Like any other industry, the art market was forced to adapt due to COVID-19. The same report revealed that online art sales skyrocketed during the pandemic. In 2019, only 4.8% of art sales were made online, compared to 72% during 2021. How well do you think this shift online will maintain its grasp as we move into a post-pandemic world? 
Well, that's a quite an easy answer to uh, to expound on because the digital art market has proved incredibly beneficial to the um, Sotheby's and so on and private collectors. I mean, it's actually doubled. The actual sales have doubled online since uh, last year. I mean, $65 billion a year in sales is quite an incredible figure. I mean, if you look at things like um, um, Warhol, Warhol's uh, Marilyn, that sold for $195 million. I mean, and that is a silkscreen print. So uh, I think that uh, when the pandemic struck, um, it kick-started the art uh, market to go online and ex- expound their, um, their demographic as well because you've got new buyers coming in, you've got... Uh, new sales uh, all the time with big companies offloading their art collections to refinance their, their projects. So it's definitely, definitely been a very good um, move to, uh, to digitise all sales across the globe. And you've talked a little bit about a little bit there about new demographics being able to access the art market through online spheres. The 2022 Art Basel and UBS Global Art Market Report describes 31% of young collectors buying their first ever artwork online this year, up from 14% in 2020. Nearly half of new art buyers made their first art purchase online, compared to 30% in 2020. Do you think the art market is more accessible to a younger demographic following a shift online? Yes, I do. I, I think, you know, the, the days of exclusivity in art where people were invited to VIP meetings and so on has put people off buying art. You know, I, I always say that you should buy art because you love it and not because you uh, want to make a quick buck on it in investments and store it away from nobody to see. I think, if you know, if people are buying um, houses, apartments or even renting, they want to be able to start an art collection. No matter if that art collection costs five dollars or fifty million dollars, it's a great way to get into the art market by just purchasing some some very small, inexpensive items, and that has um, done away with the intimidation of the big art galleries. We know that the global art market saw a rise in online sales and prices over the past three years. But what about Aotearoa's local art market? How has that been influenced by the pandemic? Well, I can assure you that uh, it has affected the Otago Art Society um, because of various um, influences that we've had. The cruise ships stopped coming. Uh, visitors to the Tyree Gorge Railway stopped coming um, because of the pandemic. Um, so people weren't act- able to access the Tyree Gorge Railway. Therefore, they wouldn't come up to our gallery and so on. Um, participation in members' meetings was curtailed. People didn't want to come out because of the uh, because of the um, pandemic. Um, our volunteers dropped off. Um, but then we decided, with Hope and Sons exhibition, that we would digitise all the work that was in that exhibition. And that seemed to have some great effect actually, because people were looking at the artwork online and deciding yes. I really like that, I'll go in and purchase it or I'll ring up and see if they've still got that online. So I think the effect of art in New Zealand um, was initially um, compounded in, in, in a bad way by the COVID uh, pandemic, but it is definitely 
definitely recovering. Throughout the pandemic, there was a wave of appreciation for the arts. Things like film and music were platformed as industries getting us through lockdowns and isolations, providing accessible entertainment. How do you think this increased gratitude for the digital arts influenced our appreciation of the fine arts? Yeah, I mean, fine arts have always been the thing for collectors to actually um, have in their house, in their in their office, um, or simply stored away in some secure location across the globe. But I think, you know, that people are more appreciative of um, buying fine art, and, uh, you know, and fine art costs money, of course. Um, uh, and, of course, the new thing now is, is crypto art, which is the new gold. It's, um, you know, you buy an NFT, a non-fungible token, and that uh, it accesses you to have your your JPEG exclusively for you. Um, I mean, the latest um, uh, NFT crypto art was by an artist called Pax. It's called The Merge, and it was sold for $91.8 million. I mean, so really, you know, the, the arts market is booming in a technological way, you know, from... Uh, from oil paintings through to new photography and new uh, technology uh, digital platforms. You know, it is booming. But I think if you come back to it, the actual um, appreciation of the fine arts, people like Picasso, Vermeer, you know, Michelangelo, you know, are very much appreciated by people and very, very, very collectible. Now me here, Doug. Thank you for talking to us. Okay. Thank you very much and have a good day. You too. That was Doug Hart, President of the Otago Art Society, on how the global and local art markets have been affected by the pandemic. Now, here is Cone Creek with Cones.
I'm Kaya Kahurangi Jameson. I'm Scott Favell. Tune in weekdays from 11am for R1 News here on Radio 1 Today, Irirangi Kotahi 91FM. The time is 17 minutes to 12 and here is Scott J. Mason with preparation.
Here we go again. It's New Zealand Music Week on The One.
up in the place I'm in. Cause I felt dead in the place I lived. Last few years, where the fuck I've been? Chasing my dreams on my brain, play dead. Ay, try to find a guy that I used to be. But I found that guy, he no use to me. And my life seems good from a post IG. With all those miles, the light feel free. But I guess, and I guess, and I guess that some days the things I can remember, they won't be the same. But for now, ay, but for now, so. One day I Well, just chase on my dreams Cause you ain't living Till you be who you wanna be So I said it after they had canceled on me But I don't care So you do you, I do me Life feels good Ooh, 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 ooh. So you Up on a floor mattress, trying to find my keys. Who just took my whip? No one I know has a driver's license, but back home, guess that's just the way it is. Damn, two years gone from the place I lived, and I don't remember living like this. Some of these things, man, I just don't miss, but there's no better place than the SIS. What a mess, what a mess, can we all just forget? So I settle for more when we're happy with less. So for now, hey. If I'm not out, so One day I said Get fighters Well, just chase on my dreams Cause you ain't living Till you be who you wanna be So I said Get after They had canceled on me But I don't care So you do you I do me Life feels good Ooh, 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 ooh.
Thanks for listening to Radio 1 91 FM podcast. All of our content lives online at r1.co.nz.